9, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am your host, David Rothkopf, and I am joined today by the old gang of favorites, including, of course, Corey Shockey of the American Enterprise Institute on her Sunday. Hi, Corey. Hello, David. If you're going to social distance, do it on your Sunday. And Rosa Brooks of Georgetown University Law School, who is in her comfortable basement. I'm in a sofa. I'm in a sofa and... and our listeners don't know this, but we're doing this by Zoom so we can see each other. And I want you all to know that this weird array of, of items that you can see in my Zoom background is actually my husband's, not mine, because I'm not that weird. Well, <laughs> but well, you married well, someone that weird. Yeah. I did, but I didn't know, I swear. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, also, Could be a lot worse. Could be a lot worse. <laughs> That 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 distinguished voice in the background, of course, belongs to Edward Luce of the Financial Times. Hi, Ed. Good afternoon, David. And in a setting that really you would expect of a journalist of of distinction and and questionable grooming habits, we have David Sanger, <laughs> surrounded by what looks like a flammable array of books and. <laughs> Uh, David, that, that flammable array is mostly my stack of David Rothkopf histories of the National Security Council. Ooh. And we'll do a we'll do the bonfire. We'll do the bonfire a little later in the show. But I've got really bad we can news do that for you. Full video. Yeah. I've got bad news for you, which is I've just signed a contract to write a third history of the National Security Council. So it's not gonna be as easy yeah, as you think. More fuel for the fire, David. More fuel yeah, for the exactly. fire. Exactly. But but look, I can hold up I can hold up for you guys to see and I'll describe it for the audience. Traitor. A history of American betrayal from Benedict Arnold to Donald Trump. That's the galley. Coming, part, part, it's the galley copy. Yeah, yeah congratulations. Yeah, see, real page. David. A racy-looking right. cover. It's unpardonable. Yeah. I know that already. I thank all of you in my acknowledgments, by the way. David, um, your, your third installment of your history of the NSC, you know, there was a, a book, a novel that came out a few years back called And Then They Came to the End. Is that going to be the title of your NSC book? No, the title is, is Debacle. Well, that's pretty good, too. Um, we're sort of getting it down to one word. We've wrote The first two books are kind of the history of the evolution of the NSC, and then the last book is the story of blowing it up. Um, but So, David, can I ask you a question before we start on our subject, since you are the world's leading expert on this? What do yes. you make of the fact that the Robert O'Brien NSC is now leaking the news that they favored travel bans and they favored a lot more preparedness than the White House uh, accepted. Well, I expect that it's going to go and shrink from its current size to an even smaller size as soon as they find out who's leaking that. But, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, O'Brien 
sees his role, you know, much as you would expect as kind of corporate lawyer, because that's what he was. And he tends to be the mouthpiece for the president. And the rest of the function of the NSC is, is, is minimized, because as we see, when we have a big crisis, we immediately go to a different kind of committee in which you have, you know, Peter Navarro saying, um, I don't need to be a doctor. I'm a social scientist. I have a PhD. I can read studies. <laughs> you know, but the, the oddity of this is... It would, that I'm crying, not laughing. Wh yeah. While there is a lot of spin to this, everything that we can tell is the NSC was much earlier to this, and it really tells you something about the disconnect between the NSC and the president, that it didn't make a difference. But no, that's true, although that's if you want to go point. that far... You know, the Obama NSC was earlier to this, and the Obama team with a tabletop, and the new the intelligence community was earlier to this, and the uh, uh, you know President Trump's own economic advisors were up to this in September, and the Army was up to this, and you know a lot of people knew what was going on, and they didn't get there. But let me let me pull some things from the news that are slight variations on the theme that you think we're gonna talk about, and then we'll probably get to that theme. But I could not start the discussion without turning to our um, uh, Empress of Civ Mill Relations, um, uh, uh, Corey, and, and, and ask him, what do you think about <laughs> what's going on at the USS Theodore Roosevelt and with the dismissal of Captain Brett Crozier? And then subsequently, as we've all learned today, with the speech by the acting secretary of the Navy, whose name is Modley, although I can't help but read it as moldy every time I see it, um, <laughs> in which he denigrated so Crozier and won a, a, a rather uproarious uh, uh, negative response from the crew of the Teddy Roosevelt. Yeah, so I'd also be interested in Rosa's view on this, but my initial reaction, um, my, my reaction has evolved a little bit. Initially, I was a little bit more sympathetic to the chain of command, uh, relieving the, the captain, because while he was absolutely doing what was right for his crew, Everybody in the military knows that the mission is the priority, not the men, not the people. Um, if you have to choose between those two, we put people in harm's way to accomplish important objectives. And so I was initially thinking this is a classic chain of command problem where the person most immediately affected wanted something done that the broader institutional perspective for could have for defensible reasons um, opposed. For example, if they understood something about Chinese near-term intentions toward for aggression or that they worried about the signal of a carrier being taken offline. There, there are defensible reasons uh, for a difference in perspective at different echelons of command. But that's obviously now not what happened. What happened is that the, the Navy leadership was very slow to respond to an emergency signal from a commander for reasons that had nothing to do with the good of the Navy, 
with tamping down aggression by potential adversaries and everything to do with, but the president's talking dangerous nonsense and we can't contradict him with actual facts, even though sailors' lives are on the line. And the best uh, summation I have seen of it, for, for those of you who, are, who have a deep interest in this, uh, Lindsay Cohen from the Naval War College, Alice Hunt Friend from CSIS, and Jim Goldby from uh, the Clements Center at the University of Texas have a terrific piece in the Washington Post uh, about the civil military aspects. Um, but now that, uh, but, but the best succinct description of what's going on was from Paul Zoldra, uh, who writes for Task and Purpose and also is the mastermind behind Duffel Blog, who pointed out that in his speech to the 5,000 members of the crew, uh, acting Secretary of the Navy Maudley said that Captain Crozier, not expecting his remarks to be made public, was either naive or stupid. And the rich irony of the acting secretary of the Navy thinking his remarks were not going to be leaked means that by his own standard, he is either naive or stupid, both of which should be causes for relief of an acting secretary of the Navy. Yes, well, I think you get a lot of, of, a lot of support for that idea. Rosa, you are invoked. What do you think? No, I completely agree with Corey. I also had a little bit of sympathy initially I was thinking, well, okay, you know, but maybe this captain did leak the letter and that's a no-no and so on. But, but the subsequent events uh, certainly suggest that his behavior was irreproachable and the behavior of everyone subsequently involved in the chain of command was somewhere between uh, craven uh, and, and just moronically stupid. Um, so I don't really have anything to add there. I, I, you know, and I think I think that the the broader point here that it highlights is just the complete failure, which we're seeing on on many levels across multiple institutions, uh, multiple issues um, of the Trump administration to take seriously the idea that there needs to be some kind of coherent approach to addressing the pandemic and and what to do about it. Uh, you know, every day it's like they wake up and, and they're starting from scratch saying, oh, look, oh, how, you know, who would have thought there's this crisis? Uh, and Trump stands there and makes stuff up and everybody else uh, either either toadies to him or makes faces behind him. Um, but what a mess. I mean, so this 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 is just a small, in, you know, in the grand scheme of things, a small example of a much, much broader problem. Uh, yeah, it is. David, is there any possibility that this acting secretary of the Navy would have taken an action that would be sure to win the uh, pushback and high profile coverage that it has without either being asked to do it by the White House or being told to do it by the White House? You know, the testimony we have on this, David, comes from the acting secretary of the Navy, who um, kindly called our friend and colleague, David Ignatius at the Washington Post, and then emailed him. David wrote a column about that that's in the Post on Monday morning, in which the acting secretary says that he was imagining in his mind what President Trump was going to think about this. And, remember, <laughs> and remembering um, what happened when the president intervened on the sentencing of um, the SEALs who uh, 
had been uh, charged with uh, uh, essentially deliberately murdering uh, some um, innocent civilians. And he wanted to get out ahead of the president and act before the president could comment on this. So this wasn't um, uh, just uh, what you would call improper command influence. It was anticipatory command influence. I'm not sure which is worse. Preemptive command influence. Preemptive, as opposed to preventative. Yeah, well, color yeah. me skeptical. I don't think I believe him. Um, uh, I, you know, I, th I, I think he was told, don't, don't How say could you this. doubt his honesty and integrity based on yeah. his behavior in the last 48 hours? Yeah, you make an excellent, um, uh, excellent point. Um, you know, Ed, this just seems symptomatic to me of a, you know, long-standing uh, policy in this administration, which is if you tell the truth in a way that might make the president uncomfortable, you get fired, whether a whistleblower during the impeachment or uh, to pick another example, which I'd like to move our conversation on to now for the, 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 the next phase, uh, something that I think is even more egregious than the firing of Captain Crozier, and that is the firing of the intelligence community IG uh, late on a Friday night in well, an effort. No one was looking. And, well, exactly. Nobody was looking. And, you know, you can't really say this is directly because of the uh, coronavirus. But obviously, the point was they wanted to do this thing, which is outrageous on every conceivable level, um, uh, and sweep it under the rug. But again, the, you know, truth is Donald Trump's kryptonite. Yeah, um, uh, I mean, there's a, there's a couple of things uh, about about that. You know, I'm 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 pretty nervous at some point that Fauci is getting very close to being fired or at least removed from from the room. Um, he's you know being um, steadily, calmly, sotto voce, sometimes contradicting, gently contradicting the. Um, president's fantasies about there being a Hail Mary uh, cocktail of drugs pushed by Rudy Giuliani and Peter Navarro now and others, and is, you know, cutting him off at press conferences from answering the question of whether there is therapeutic benefit proven um, control group trial therapeutic benefit to the um, hydroxy um, chloroquine um, remedy that Trump is touting. So I think Fauci is also in the firing line. Um, we have IG Atkinson, of course, um, the Intel IG um, fired on, on Friday, the revenge for impeachment and for anything to do with impeachment continues. Um, of more immediate concern to me is the framing of the IG that is appointed under the $2 trillion stimulus to oversee the corporate lending that the Treasury, that Secretary Mnuchin will be in charge of. And that Trump has said is answerable to him. It will be his guy. He's nominated a guy called Miller, who was part of the legal team on impeachment, um, and who will not therefore be answerable to Congress. As you know, all, all AGs are answerable both to the executive and the legislative branch. Um, Trump um, um, saying that the person in charge of doling out the corporate money is answerable only to him, rings such deafening alarm bells, you know, I don't need to spell it out. Um, you, your ears just ring at the prospect. 
Um, and I think that if we're going to avoid any kind of repeat of 2008, 2009, where you know, whatever trust was left in the system was destroyed um, by the perceptions of how TARP was uh, mishandled um, and the perception that Wall Street was let off the hook. Um, if we then have a sort of second wave of that now, um, over mistrust, over the distribution of the, um, uh, the, the hundreds of billions of dollars in that stimulus, um, to which the IG envisaged in the legislation is critically important. The independence of that IG, the character of that IG, and the power of that IG. Um, then, uh, you know, we're going, we're, we're going to be, we're going to be getting a, another wave of populism that could go left or right or both ways, um, that would dwarf the one in 08, 09. Um, so I'm sort of, I'm, I'm sort of concerned on a much larger scale than, 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 than you know, the, the old, but very, very, um, troubling story of Trump continuing his, um, process of revenge for anybody involved on the other side in the impeachment process. So Corey, you know, this is democracy dies the death of a thousand cuts. You know, it's not a coup um, per se. Um, and we'll set aside all the 2016 narratives for a second. But one by one, these things happen. And there's a certain degree of outrage, particularly among inside the Beltway wonks who go, oh, yeah, that's outrageous. IG, And by the way, I encourage everybody, IG Atkinson made a statement. Uh, which he circulated, which I encourage everybody to read because it is an extraordinary um, uh, statement of his beliefs and that he was simply trying to do what he believed was the right thing to do. But whether it's him or Crozier or uh, Vindman or Yovanovitch, um, uh, you know, and, and, and there's a long, long list here, or hiring people who are toadies, um, who simply will not put their duty to the country before their duty. Uh, to the president, and that includes a whole raft of people who are in acting roles who understand this kind of constraint on them, as does this guy, um, Modley. Um, uh, and everybody, by the way, who appears in the White House infomercial each afternoon, when they stand up and the, there's almost a, it's, 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 it reminds me of kind of, I don't know, Passover service or something where there are specific words to be spoken here in which they say things, you know, like, oh, dear leader who art in heaven, you know, hallowed be thy name, and, you know, Trump is fantastic. I don't think that gets said at Passover, David. It's is that not, what they, yeah, is that what know. they say, David? Are you I sure? don't know. I, it's <laughs> been, I think, in my entire multiple decades of existence, I've been to one Passover Seder. <laughs> so I don't, I don't really, I think I'm the, the expert here. But the, but the point is the ritual... Uh, salute to the dear leader is is become part of it. This is you know we're we're sinking rapidly into a certain kind of quicksand here, don't you think, Corey? I do, David. I you know one of the reasons the relief of the aircraft carrier commander um, makes so many people so nervous is because this is the political leadership leaning very far into the institutional prerogatives of the military services and that's really unusual and it's a danger sign that even the institution that is most resilient uh, against political interference is being deeply corroded 
by the corruption of the Trump administration. Hi. We're all going through an extremely difficult time, and we're looking forward to the day that we can all be together again. Uh, in fact, on September 10th, 2020, the DSR Network, together with other popular podcasts and blogs, including The Daily Beans, uh, Just Security, uh, The Lawfare Podcast, Talking Feds, Words Matter, Gaslit Nation, and a lot of others that you know and love, are going to bring together all the participants of those podcasts live and in person to you at what we call the Washington Today Forum, but will probably be better known by its initials, WTF. Taking place at the historic Warner Theater in Washington, D.C., this one-of-a-kind event will bring together the hosts of your favorite podcasts along with special guests to discuss how to reclaim our democracy and some sense of normalcy in these uncertain times. The event will include opportunities to interact with the hosts of your favorite podcasts at a suitable distance, of course, uh, lunch, and a cash bar reception at the conclusion of the event. The tickets to the all-day-long event it includes two meals and all this interaction and all these great guests um, are a hundred bucks, but you can purchase them at a discount um, uh, through May 31st, just $75. As a listener to our podcast, you can take an additional $10 off the price of admission by visiting the dsrnetwork.com, select events in the nav menu and enter Washington and select Washington Today Forum. You enter uh, the code DEEPSTATE10 at the checkout, uh, and you'll get that $10 off discount. So that's go all those steps, go to Washington Today Forum, enter the code DEEPSTATE10 at the checkout, and you'll get 10 bucks off the already low price. Um, better still, if you decide that right now is the time you want to become a founding insider, you'll receive 20% off the membership and a special edition PodCon 2020 mug and a code to purchase the ticket to the event for just 40 bucks. So that's an incredible deal, and it helps DSR as we enter into, in just a couple of months, our third year of broadcasting um, by giving us support at this difficult time. So we encourage you to go and become a member, as we had for a long time, or buy tickets to the podcast, uh, this live event, or both. Uh, existing founding insiders will receive the code to purchase their tickets for 40 bucks. So if you've already helped us, you're going to benefit from this too. More than ever, the DSR Network is committed to bringing you the analysis and expertise that you've come to rely on for these past several years. We're incredibly grateful to you for your, your support, and we look forward to seeing you in September, um, and perhaps often again after that. Thank you. Yeah, no, there's no question about that. Now, you know, I don't know, Corey, are you watching this or just a phone call? I'm just on the phone. So you don't get to see the video, do you? <laughs> no, David, what am I missing? Well, one of our <laughs> participants, and you can guess who, is playing with different <laughs> background images throughout all of this in the most childish way possible. Oh, um, what's the best one? Yeah. I just thought it would be boring for you guys to just see this blank wall and sofa cushion behind me. <laughs> I will okay, say David, that, you have um, to pick your poison. Do you want her tweeting <laughs> while we are recording, or do you want her setting different backgrounds? No, no, the video, the video is a thousand times better. I am a complete Zoom addict. All of its 
uh, security deficits that David will no doubt enumerate <laughs> at some point. Okay, um, so are we going to post video starting this week then instead of just the audio link? In a couple of weeks, we will, we will yes. tiptoe towards yep. that. Um, well, you and, know, David, I am being very, very tame. I'm only experimenting with the, the pre-built-in Zoom virtual backgrounds. <laughs> I've been teaching all my law school classes online, and I've had students pop up with virtual backgrounds like the Situation Room with Obama uh, watching <laughs> and things like that. It can get a little alarming That's suddenly. Hey, Rosa, can you go back to the one with you on the beach there? That, we, that was we a nice that. one. Yeah, I like that one, too. Yeah, um, with the palm tree. Yeah. Yeah. I like that people using TikTok to make more than one version of themselves in the room. Ooh. Well, we're, we'll have to do TikTok experimentation at some later TikTok's point. Um, no, China, China. David, don't let this happen. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a really good point. Um, in any event, we've gotten distracted by this, and I'm sure that everybody at home is scratching their heads. Yeah, and I've been shamed into going back to the boring sofa. No, no, I kind of liked it when you had, like, the universe behind you. It seemed in <laughs> keeping with your role. Seems appropriate. In, in, in our cosmology here. Mm. Um, but to pick up on this theme of death by a thousand cuts in democracy as a result of these things that are happening, many of which, you know, there's a lot of news these days. People have a lot on their mind and it just slides by. And the closer we get to this election cycle, the, 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 the more worrisome the behavior of our government. Is that a question? It's like one of those things that provokes a response. Oh, I see. Well, um, Yes, yes, indeed. Um, I will, one thing I did wanted to add to Ed's comments about poor Dr. Fauci and whether he's long for this world, uh, or at least long for the world of the Trump press conferences, um, uh, because he keeps poo-pooing the idea that uh, uh, hydroxychloroquine is the, is the magic cure. Have any of you ever taken hydroxychloroquine? Uh, I've taken chloroquine. I took, I took antimonarial drugs in Papua New Guinea. I didn't have any side effects, but well, I, I didn't have coronavirus either. A very common side effect, uh, I, I took this at one point in the past, is, is, is psychosis. Uh, oh. Visual and oh, yeah. I, I'm sorry, I did. I did. Have <laughs> yeah. Oh, so yeah, that explains that. everything. Yeah. <laughs> visual and auditory hallucinations, delusions of persecution and grandiosity, agitation, etc. Yes. So, yes. you know, Trump did Wait a minute, I've had all of those and I've never taken yeah. them. Stuff. Well, well, Damn I it, I, 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 you've explained so much. <laughs> Trump said yesterday that he was going to take it himself, and I was just thinking, well, how would we even know the difference if he began to have hallucinations, delusions of grandiosity, etc.? Um, no, no, things are, just to return to my usual theme, which is the pending apocalypse, um, we are getting closer, guys. The, the, the end is nigh. Etc. Uh, I mean, I think that things are falling apart on multiple levels. Uh, I think that we are seeing in this all of this back and forth about whether or not we could have mail-in votes, and Trump is suggesting we restrict any mail-in votes to people over 65 because God knows he wouldn't want any young people to vote, um, etc. Uh, I think that we are all of the signs are there for a concerted attack on the ability to hold the election. Uh, as scheduled in November. So, you know, meanwhile, internationally, things are falling apart as the U.S. tries to outbid all of our allies for rare supplies of masks, ventilator-making materials, you name it. 
Um, uh, so it's turning into, you know, the, the world Trump envisioned is coming to pass. You know, that transactional world in which it's dog eat dog and alliances are only purely temporarily, temporary inconvenience and there are no enduring friendships or, or allegiance. Uh, he is now making that world to come to pass by essentially acting in, in, in a manner that is designed to induce every other nation, including our closest allies, to, out of sheer self-defense, throw up their arms and say, okay, I guess it's everyone for themselves. And that, that is the world we're creating internationally uh, and domestically. We're increasingly creating that between the states uh, as President Trump provides, presides over an increasing free-for-all in which states try to outbid one another and outbid the federal government for medical supplies. Uh, and all of this is occurring against the backdrop of a, obviously a presidential election year in which we're then seeing all the ensuing chaos and fear potentially being used as a reason to, to call into question election results or postpone the election altogether. So I, I sense the apocalypse. Uh, I, 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 can, I can hear its heavy breathing. Uh, well, not, uh, it's, first of all, I didn't know the apocalypse, apocalypse yes. did Much heavy like breathing. Times winged chariot and Darth Vader, it is, it is ever hurrying near, breathing heavily. Yeah, you need to have a screen backdrop for that, Rosa. You gotta, when you say that, for the benefit on. of, yeah. yeah. Ride exactly. of the Valkyries would be the backdrop. That, that nice. Yeah, exactly. that's yeah, exactly. Um, my wife is an opera singer, and she's learning a bunch of Wagner parts at the moment. So I like hear the ride of the Valkyries. Why Pardon can't me? She be, why cannot she be part of this podcast? This would be she can. I'll be happy to invite her on. Yeah. But I be you know I like be going up to make a sandwich, and in the background I hear the ride of the Valkyries. It's <laughs> that's a little it's, it's a little intimidating. Although it does you know per your point here. Um, and I'll turn to David next, just in order. And of course, he can respond on anything he wants to. But I have to. I have to comment on the fact that you know the the uh, five of us have been doing this, you know, more or less for five years, right? Because there was you know the, the, the foreign policy, the ER, and then this thing started uh, almost three years ago. And um, you know, in the beginning there, we thought it was hilarious when Rose would say, oh, yeah, I'm going to buy bunkers and we're going to live in silos under the ground. And Sorry now. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and it all seemed kooky. And, you know, all, you know, all these things that she has been predicting, you know, seem truer and truer. And here we're sitting here all videoing from our respective bunkers, unable to go into the outside world. Uh, and Rosa just has this blithe smile on her face, like I told because, you so. Because I have a delivery of pickles coming, so I'm good for the apocalypse. Yeah, if uh, I guess the, the advent or the explosion of e-commerce is certainly one thing that will help us get through the um, apocalypse. Um, you know, David, in covering this, at, you know, this the, the way this crisis has been handled. Um, do you see other wor worrisome signs that we haven't enumerated here? Well, I do see a few. Um, first, on Rose's apocalypse, I want to ask her the question of whether or not, if you're living in one of those silo bunkers, you know, the old nuclear bunkers out there, can you still get delivery food to your bunker, or do you have to take the elevator all the way up? to the top and expose yourself. <laughs> There's a sort of a uh, duck waiter type chute that, that you just send the pickles right down the chute. 
Oh, okay. <laughs> so there's a, there's so most David, bunkers nowadays have a little Instacart port at the door. Yeah. <laughs> Is the chute large enough for bulk by toilet roll? <laughs> oh, of course, of course it is. She sneaks out just like the um, just like the husband in Parasite. Yeah, yeah, good, good. That's a good analogy. Another world that seemed like a strange fantasy a while ago now is true. Anyway, so, David, David, a, a slightly more serious answer to your question. Um, I've been struck. Uh, and we, we wrote about this, uh, some of my colleagues did from Europe a few uh, days ago, about the number of authoritarians who have seized on the moment to seize the powers that they want, because they've got a moment here to do emergency powers. And because they're not getting any pushback, because people want to see their government take a stronger role. And What's odd about this is that President Trump, for all of the things that we were worried that he would go do, and I have to say that the firing of the inspector general was among one of the more worrisome, even if it was predictable. Um, what he hasn't done is asserted a federal power to actually begin to make states that did not want to comply actually try to comply uh, with the stay-at-home orders and so forth. And so the oddity here is that he has let this federal system go turn on itself so that you're having these strange bidding wars, so that you're having some states try to block residents from other states. Uh, I saw that Texas was increasingly concerned that people not come across the border from Louisiana uh, and so forth. And this, in an odd way, could have been solved by actually having a fairly strong federal response. One of the things that okay, worries me I just wrote that exact same argument for my Atlantic column. It's such a mystery why Trump's authoritarian tendencies and executive power grabs in so many other areas, the one area it would actually be good for the country for him to exercise his existing executive power, he's unwilling to. It, it is it is pretty bizarre. Um, and I, I'd add to this that I've got one more that I'm worried about. So I, I, I share the worry about what's going to happen with the balloting. I actually think going to paper balloting would be good even if we weren't in crisis here because there are fewer cyber vulnerabilities to doing that, although it does introduce problems, especially getting ballots to people with no fixed address. Uh, for example, if Rosa uh, moved to her bunker and her ballot showed up at the Virginia House. How do you know? Um, uh, but the, uh, the second concern I have is that as we move from the current um, bunker mentality to beginning to crawl back out into the sunlight, there's going to be a differentiation between those people who have the antibody and those people who do not. And there's going to be a big and interesting movement to mark publicly who's got the antibodies and thus can go back to work safely and can do these different jobs and who does not, um, who could be a potential carrier. And there's a big fear that you could end up with the sort of equivalent of the um, big scarlet A, or I guess in this case, the scarlet C for coronavirus. And some interesting ideas about how to handle this. One is to actually put a record through the immune uh, database, immunity database that we have when we all 
uh, get inoculations or our kids get inoculations. But I've seen some crazy proposals, including that people basically go around with a button that basically says, I've got the antibody. And I can't think of anything that would be more destructive at a period of time when we've seen the American population separated by enough other issues. Uh, that's a little uh, disturbing. I thought he was going to take it in a slightly different direction there, Ed. And uh, it's one that I wanted to bring up. It's this authoritarian drift that takes place or opportunism on the part of authoritarians, including uh, most notably Viktor Orban in Hungary, who essentially just said, I'm suspending everything for now. Um, I don't frankly recall what Secretary Pompeo's response to that was. Uh, certainly the response of the United States government was uh, muted if there was any response at all. Uh, and you've also had some other examples, including in India and in China and, of course, other places, where um, what's, you know, the people, governments have used this opportunity um, to move in disturbing directions. And whereas David is absolutely right, Trump has failed to use certain federal powers, I think largely because he doesn't want to be blamed for some things. Uh, he did make a move with Bill Barr to get certain emergency privileges, um, uh, emergency rights to maintain the peace in this. He saw it from the Congress. Of course, Congress did not respond to do that. Uh, there have been certain measures, uh, including moving troops and suggesting we are somehow, you know, in a heightened drug war with the South that I think echo his desire to protect the borders uh, and so forth. So I think he has shown some um, authoritarian tendencies in the midst of all of this. But I'm just wondering how you view, you know, this issue that David just brought up in the light of Orban, in the light of the sort of rise of the authoritarian nationalists in all of this. Um, I mean, I think it's very concerning and it's, it's remarkable how quickly some of this is happening. Um, Orban, you know, and they say truth is the first casualty of war. I mean, freedom of press is really the first casualty of war. Um, and it, war is always the perfect cover to for authoritarians to um, smuggle in the kinds of changes that might have otherwise taken a lot le longer for them to squeeze through. Um, Orban's thing is very interesting as a test case because um, what he said is that you've got three years in prisonable um, for the spreading of misinformation, fake news. Um, but of course, he defines, his people define what fake news is. And one of the sort of braver parts of Hungarian journalism in the last week since Orban essentially closed down democracy is highlighting the fact there have been no tests in Hungary. And so that Hungary has a uh, a remarkably low rate of infections. It's only got a few hundred compared to its neighbors. Um, and the journalists who've been highlighting this have been threatened uh, and censored. So um, as you would expect anybody using the term fake news, Trump, of course, being the main purveyor of that term, um, what they mean is the opposite. They are projecting themselves. Um, and so uh, India is probably the most disturbing example um, here. Um, the Indian government has taken extraordinary measures to try and shut down non-officially approved reporting of the coronavirus, you know, which at another time, you know, if it's a siloed issue, could mean, um, you know, a, a severe irritant or a troubling sign 
of, of a government um, uh, expanding censorship. But the coronavirus is everything. That means everything has to be approved. Um, and that anti-national coverage, you know, which once might have been um, applied just to Kashmiri journalism on Kashmir, is now applied to journalism pretty much on everything because everything is about the coronavirus. There's 1.3 billion people there shut down in national lockdown. Um, the, there was a gathering of Muslims in Delhi um, before the national lockdown, as there are gatherings of all kinds of groups, religious and otherwise, otherwise at all times in Delhi, that has been uh, labeled by people on the far right as the original cluster of coronavirus, that the strain is being spread by Muslims. And that is now being um, rocket boosted by pro-government media and social media. And it's given the context in which this is all landing, with what was happening before the coronavirus in India, very, very troubling. Um, just one thing about Trump and, you know, what Corey and David said um, about the sort of ambivalence. You know, he's got all this power that he's not using. He's not really using the, the, the Defence um, Production Act. Um, he's not really using the national emergency. Um, and whilst he is sort of smuggling in stuff on the board about uh, at the border and firing IGs, um, this was the sort of thing he was doing anyway. And I think the answer to that is what he said very plainly in exactly these words at a press conference 10 days ago, which is, I don't take responsibility. I think this is a political, I think this is a tactical stance. Um, and that if we end up with, say, 80,000 deaths, as opposed to, you know, the maximum scenario of 2.2 2 billion that the Imperial College study said, what he's going to say is two things. One is, because of me, we've only got 80,000 because I closed flights from China in late January. And also, this was just a massive liberals, big city overreaction. Um, and thank God I didn't, you know, um, kill the economy even more. They killed the economy as much as they could, but I at least preserve the red state economy. That, I think, is sort of tactically how he's feeling his way through this. Well, let's, we've only got four or five minutes to go. I think, you know, the way you've taken this, which is essentially to look forward and think about some of the lasting consequences um, that may come out of this thing from, from our perspective, as we covered here, which is the way the government works or the way the world works, um, is, is a good idea. And I think we're sort of, uh, tipping, uh, we've, we've touched on a couple of those things, but I'd like to go around and everybody in a minute or a minute and a half uh, to offer up some perspectives um, on that. And Corey, as I turn to you, I'll prime the pump a little bit by saying, you know, it does also make a difference that the country that most would have been counted on to stand up against the rise of authoritarianism um, doesn't do that. So quite apart from what the president did or didn't do himself, the U.S. is being kind of quiet. And by the way, so is the EU. The EU response to Hungary was really um, uh, weak and didn't actually call out Hungary by name. And so nobody, nobody's standing up to fight for this. Stuff. But everybody, a minute and a so, half on sort of long-term consequences. So you're certainly right that free societies are slow to organize, but they do tend to be more durable in commitments than other types of uh, authoritarian or other types of governments. So, yeah, everybody's slow getting their act together, but they are getting their act together. Um, one of two things I think uh, we should look for. One is 
the potential collapse of states as their legitimacy uh, evaporates with their inability to protect their public and make good public health decisions. I think Egypt is particularly at risk in this regard. Um, second thing is that China is the world's largest creditor. And as the, if the economic depression uh, perks through uh, anywhere near the magnitude and volatility of what we're seeing, you're going to see a whole bunch of defaults by emerging market governments on BRI loans. And China's going to have a big choice to make, whether to be a, a generous lender or whether to repossess infrastructure and what that might mean for the security obligations of the United States, India, Japan, other countries. Good point. Rosa? You know, um, I actually wanted to come back to something that Ed raised, uh, uh, I think it was Ed, um, about the, well, bouncing off what Ed said about Hungary. Um, I think that one of the issues that we should be thinking about as we move forward is the ways in which even even without creepy leaders such as Donald Trump or, or Hungary's Orban, there are going to be tremendous pressures to move towards a surveillance society as a result of the virus. And there was a, there was a piece actually from several weeks ago um, in I think the MIT Technology Review uh, on this issue which was arguing that we may very well be all facing a future in which for good faith public health reasons, you know, when you want to get on an airplane, your temperature is taken, or if you want to fly, you will be required to have one of the apps of the type that they've used in places like Taiwan, which will automatically ping if you have come into contact with someone who tested positive for the virus, which would then mean that you can't get on that airplane either until the quarantine period is passed. And you know, that, that all kinds of ways, not only will you not maybe be having a button that says, I've got the antibodies, but that there may be all kinds of ways in which if we want to reopen businesses, schools, et cetera, the only way to do that will be perceived as a mandatory regime of very intrusive testing and surveillance that will not, you know, again, that, would, that, that couldn't be purely voluntary or, or it wouldn't work. And I don't think, I, I know that for, for myself, I feel like I've only just begun to think about, well, what does our world start looking like if for the next year, year and a half, until there's a vaccine or a treatment, uh, there will be tremendous public health pressures um, on government at all levels, both in the U.S. and elsewhere, to adopt that kind of mandatory surveillance regime for public health purposes, which will in itself raise all sorts of challenges, not least because it will replicate and exacerbate existing social and economic uh, disparities. For instance, in the US, we, we've already seen that African-Americans are more likely to die of the coronavirus, uh, are getting infected at higher rates, that infection and transmission rates have something to do with whether you live in a densely populated area in more crowded housing or not and so forth, as well as pre-existing pre health conditions that may predispose you to, to, to get the disease and so on. So, so, so at even best case scenario, we're going to have a system in which with the best intentions in the world, there will be 
surveillance mechanisms that may exacerbate existing inequalities and restrict civil liberties. And in the worst case scenario, these same technologies will be used and exploited by bad faith actors uh, in, the, in governments at every level uh, in, order to, in order to enhance repressive measures. So it's, it's something that I, I, as I said, this has just begun to really come crashing down on me in the last few days, um, that the way out of this may be a route that leads directly to a surveillance society much more than anything we've ever seen. And it's something I think that we probably do all need to be grappling with even more. Okay, but again, a minute, minute and a half each. Uh, that was very chilling, David. Do other. So I wanted to go back to um, Corey's point about uh, China, because having already, you know, raised my fears about uh, where this could be in the way we're all identified as having the antibodies or not. Um, the really interesting question is: Is China going to emerge from this the big winner or the big loser? The argument for the big loser is the virus began there and we learned a huge amount about the failures in the Chinese system by their reluctance to both be honest about the results and then to try to stiff arm American uh, experts coming in. And now they've tried to go use it and flip it for the purposes of extending their power. And that means that they're delivering goods to the United States, they're delivering goods to Italy, they're delivering goods uh, to uh, different parts of Europe that they think they might be able to peel away from the European allies. And over time, I suspect that that will probably be the part that most of people in the rest of the world end up remembering, that they're going to use a combination of their telecommunications prowess to wire up these countries and their ability to go... Um, spread some medical and testing help and so forth to really solidify their claims. And what's not happening right now is the United States proactively going out with a plan about how we would go and try to counter this. And uh, at some point when we get to thinking beyond our own crisis, and it's very hard to do when you have this huge number of Americans tragically being struck down by this uh, awful virus, um, we're going to have to think about, um, what our international strategy is for this. And we probably should have been thinking about that from the start. True. Last word, Ed. I'm conscious of the fact I didn't fully answer your previous question. No, Pompeo didn't make any statement, neither did the White House about Orban. There, there is a, um, a green light there for anybody to do what they want. The United States doesn't care. And as you pointed out, Europe doesn't because Europe can only penalize countries within the European Union that are um, closing down elements of or any or all parts of democracy um, if they have unanimity. And Poland will always be relied upon to veto any, any uh, attempts to penalize Hungary. So within Europe, you can, with impunity, um, uh, you, can, um, you can close down independence of the legal system, whatever you like. Poland will veto for you or Hungary will veto for you. Um, so I am concerned about that larger picture. I just saw as we were, as David was talking, in fact, a news flash from the BBC um, that Boris Johnson's been taken into intensive care 
in critical condition, so therefore is being put on a ventilator. If a prime minister dies, and Prime Minister Britain dies, you know, which now looks like a possibility, and I really hope that doesn't happen, needless to say, I um, very much hope that doesn't happen. Um, this is going to drive home, you know, what, 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 a, what a serious situation we're in. I mean, I've got no particular other than just sort of mentioning what is at this moment um, a breaking news thing, no particular lessons to draw from that other than this just drives home what a serious situation we're in. Yeah. Um, I would add, by the way, just in passing, that the uh, I'm, I'm, uh, I, I don't think there's any place in the world for kings and queens in the 21st century, but I thought the speech of the queen on Sunday was uh, a real textbook example on how a leader speaks to a country and uh, was, was unifying and was compassionate uh, and was everything that has never happened even for 15 seconds from the leader of the United States. I might add, and I wrote something about this at the Daily Beast, you can go and, you can go and read it. But A very good think, piece. Thanks. But one of the things is that the, that's happened here is that the 2020 election has changed. Because it's not going to be a referendum on Trump-Russia. It's not going to be a referendum on a lot of the things that you might have thought it was going to be a referendum on. We're going to go into the fall with 47 million unemployed Americans, uh, the biggest unemployment crisis in American history, um, the biggest economic downturn in one quarter in American history in the second quarter, a downturn for the year that's now predicted to be the second largest of the past uh, period since the, the Great Depression. Um, and the question is not just going to be who's responsible, who did what, and all of this. It's going to be how do we rebuild the country? Whose vision of the rebuilding the country? And the Republicans are going to offer up a vision that's one kind of a vision that's more market-driven and, and, and more like the world we've been seeing recently. question is whether the Democrats are going to step in and offer one that includes um, you know, looking at healthcare now, you know, where we've seen certain weaknesses or looking at the unemployment uh, insurance system that we've got or looking at infrastructure. Republicans have talked also about looking at infrastructure. So we're going we're gonna to have a different kind of political debate, one that could be quite momentous because typically in U.S. history, when you go through a crisis like this, whether it's the Civil War, one of the two world wars or the Great Depression, you come out with a big reset politically um, and, uh, and new priorities. And so we'll have to see whether that happens here. In any event, we'll, we'll continue discussing these things at Deep State Radio. Uh, our Thursday podcast, which kind of used to be the podcast about case against the president and that kind of thing, um, has become kind of the podcast about healthcare. And we've got Lori Garrett, the author of The Coming Plague, back again on Thursday, and she's been terrific. And one of the things we're going to do maybe next week, maybe the week after, is we're going to start doing kind of Zoom webinars where we bring in a couple of experts, including some of these folks, and have a, have a, enable our um, members and listeners to join in a more interactive conversation and post questions. So we look forward to being able to do that and look for announcements of that. Um, at the dsrnetwork.com. In the meantime, thank you to Corey, thank you to Rosa, uh, thank you to David, and thank you to Ed. And uh, we'll be talking to you again real soon. Stay safe.